This is the Town Roots Podcast, episode number 30. Welcome to the Town Roots Podcast, the podcast of, about, and for Oakland. No matter if you live in the town, do business here, or are visiting, we have something for you. And now, your hosts, Anthony Wilson and Vincent Hayes. So today we're welcomed by uh, David Peters from the Black Liberation Tour, uh, Dave and Vincent, how are you guys doing today? Doing great. Fantastic. So, so Dave, why don't we just kick off? Tell us about the Black Liberation Tour. All right, and I appreciate that. You know, you and I go go way back. So this is a pleasure to be able yeah. to uh, talk to you about the Black Liberation Walking Tour. Um, Black Liberation Walking Tour is, uh, can be described multiple ways and it meets, f- fulfills multiple functions. Basically, it's a walking tour of the Hoover Foster uh, neighborhood here in Oakland. It celebrates, um, there's 10 stops, and it celebrates artistic, cultural, and heritage sites uh, in this neighborhood that spans uh, over 100 years of things and people and events uh, that Black folks did right here in this neighborhood. So, Dave, tell me, how did your family come to Oakland? You know, Anthony, that's that's uh glad to, I'm glad you asked me that. You know, I'm very interested in one of the things that I like to find out from people we interview for these stories is how did they come to Oakland, right? And so my family, like so many others, um came during the Great Migration. My grandfather graduated from welding school in Houston in the 30s. And according to my mom, top of the class. But there's no work for skilled laborers in in Jim Crow, Houston, Texas in the 30s. So he and his brother-in-law heard there was work for Black folks in the shipyards in Portland. So they jumped in the Model T bound for Portland. Uh, We had gas rationing coupons during World War II. And they ran out of gas rationing coupons in Oakland. And my family's been here ever since. That is a fascinating story. I think I think most of us have stories similar to that in, in in our families. I know I do. And so, what made you start this? Like, what was the inspiration behind it? You know, and that's a, that's a really interesting question. And, and I think every time I'm asked that, I answer slightly differently um, because I can't point to a thing, a single thing. Um, but as I think about answering this question, kind of more of the circumstances come to me. And so there, there's multiple influences. One is, you know, I like going on walking tours. And so I've been on walking tours, uh, the multiple walking tours here in the town. Uh, and then that's something I like to do when we go visit other places. Um, there was a desire by me to try and bring neighbors together um, in this neighborhood. And because, you know, I'm a third generation resident here. I live in next door to the house that I was wow. born in. Uh, and a house has been in my family since 1955. And so moved back here four years ago. Uh, and the first thing, one of the first things my mom said was, you know, Ms. Altenier Baker Cook, one of her childhood friends uh, from, you know, Hoover and Mac in the 50s, um, has something has something going on and go go help her. And that is the that was the Hoover, the friends of the Hoover Durant Public Library effort to, to bring the library back. But in getting to know Ms. Cook and, you know, bringing, having some folks over and doing some things, um, I can remember explicitly one day, my mom, Ms. Cook, my uncle, Ms. Wells, um, got to telling stories about 
the neighborhood back in the 50s and a neighborhood here growing up. And I looked around at the 15 or so other people that were sitting in my living room, new residents, old residents, white, black, Asian, and they were all just about had their mouths hanging open. They were so engrossed in what was happening. And then you could just feel there was magic in the air, right? It's always like, you know what? We need to do this yeah, uh, yeah. And, and make it available uh, for folks. And so we had a storytelling uh, event in connection with the grand opening of Community Foods Market. Uh, and it was the same experience. And you know, there was a bunch of people. We did an after half an afternoon, did an afternoon. Uh, and people were really engrossed. And so I realized a couple of things. One, the stories of our elders are invaluable and we they need to be captured um, while they're still with us uh, so that we can preserve those stories, archive them, have an oral history of our own stories for our own folks, um, and then be able to share them back out with the neighborhood. Um, and then I realized there was just a hunger for stories, community stories and storytellers. Um, and began, and so that I marinated, you know, on that for a while. Um, and then when really thinking about, um, you know, living here off of, off of San Pablo in the California Hotel, and just thinking about the changes in the neighborhood, and especially along the San Pablo corridor uh, from when I was a kid until now. And, you know, I mean, you, nostalgia is a dangerous thing. Right. So I can't pretend that San Pablo in the late 60s, early 70s, it was all hunky dory and, you know, beautiful and all this activity. But it was more than it is now. And so I remember when 30th and San Pablo Furniture Warehouse actually had Vita was running TV commercials on Channel 2. And Vita Blue was talking about, can you come and get that round bed here? I'm like, here is a local grocery store, a local (laughs) furniture store that had was doing enough business to be advertising on TV during these games. I'm like, this is phenomenal. Um, and they had to, they had to radio, and maybe I'm getting confused. Maybe it was on the radio. I'm remembering the jingle, 30 in San Pablo Furniture Warehouse. Um, and then remembering, you know, Flint's was here and Emma's Fish and all these storefronts and especially these food places that are now long shuttered were open. Something had changed in this neighborhood and folks who are newer uh, or discouraged wanted to make sure um, that that wasn't forgotten, but more importantly, that this community uh, had an opportunity to try to influence development along the corridor. And so in trying to think about how this community could have, you know, community control, there's a slogan from the Panthers, uh, over our future development patterns here, you know, how do we make that happen? So first, first I was like, well, you got to find out the people that would be interested in something like that. You got to identify the folks um, and then you got to bring them together and then you need to figure out a forum to be able to solicit their input. And so the, because so that is really the long-term goal um, of this project. Um, but to get there, I realized I, mean, I wanted to do a couple and then some other influences. Um, I've seen massive displacement here. You know, when my family moved, first moved on this block in 1950, my mom tells me they're the fourth black family on the block. By the time I'm born in the mid-60s, the whole neighborhood is black, right? Um, and now when we moved back four years ago, we're the fourth black family on the block again. So we've seen massive change. Um, and this was, um, you know, it's heartbreaking for me to see, you know, black folks, we got less than half that we did in 1990. You know, we went from a city where, 
close to 50% black in the 1980 census to maybe 20% now. And so to watch both, you know, specifically uh, the, the, the kids that I grew up with who were inheriting, you know, their parents' homes get wiped out in the predatory lending crisis um, and see, you know, half housing spot vacant. Um, and then thinking about, you know, and then talking to people, longtime residents who say, no, I'm tired of living here. Um, this this junky and dirty and there's too much homelessness and you know all of these problems. Well, well, you know what would make people stay here? And so I got to thinking, you know, what if we were able to? So, a city of Oakland has a cultural plan. Um, it's titled "Creating Belonging in Oakland." And so, what I wanted to do is to try and create belonging in my neighborhood, particularly for longtime residents. So I said, you know, what if we start to think about and celebrate, you know, 100 years of, you know, Black history, Black liberative acts in this neighborhood as a way to encourage people um, to stay here, that there is a place for us, um, that we can have stories and a culture and places here that reflect who we are and who we want to be and what we've done. Um, And then... um, I can remember specifically walking around one day. Uh, I was over on 32nd um, and people dump trash there frequently. And I'm looking at this trash, but I'm walking around this neighborhood thinking about the past um, and having a lot of nostalgia. And like, you know, why am I here? Because I love this neighborhood. Well, why do I love this neighborhood? And I started to realize it was because of my history here. Because I make walks places and think about, you know, this is what happened there. And this is what happened over there. Um, and then wanting to share that with both new people so they could realize, you know, stuff happened here. You know, this is not a place where nothing ever happened that we need to transform and remake and redo. Uh, we need to acknowledge what had happened here. And then as well for older residents to reflect back to capture the stories. The stories are important. People want to hear their particular stories and to be able to catalog those in the library and then reflect those, reflect those back to folks. And then finally, there is a, there's a, if you at, uh, at market between 30th and 31st, uh, between Market and San Pablo, it's kind of a triangular intersection. If you stand there, you can see a number of murals. There's some Black Power murals. I think there's some um, Aztec-related symbology murals. There's some, there's some other things there. And it was just a very powerful cultural place to me. And so I wanted, and so it felt good for me to see some of these murals that reflected me and my culture and people who look like me on these walls. It felt like home, it felt more like home. And I thought that if it had that positive impact on me, that it could have that positive impact on others. And so wanted to um, create uh, more murals and be able to tell people about the murals that are here with the idea of that being uh, what someone else coined a um, cultural protective shield against um, um, displacement. And so for all those reasons, I came up with, you know, what's the way to, to be able to serve this up for people? And I thought uh, one way to do that and the way that would be achievable for me would be to create this walking tour. This is, this is amazing. I, um, I, I commend you for creating an effort like this. Uh, it's, it's interesting because I think West Oakland has probably the most character out of all the different neighborhoods within within Oakland. 
And and you've talked about, kind of touched on uh, one of the things that, that has always been synonymous with West Oakland here in recent memory is, is uh, the change or development patterns that would happen, uh, uh, i.e. Uh, gentrification, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so when you think about your neighborhood and, and what you want to see going forward, like um, what are the things that you think West Oakland could benefit from in terms of new development? And what are the things that would hinder any type of growth for long-term residents? So we, we, we a couple of things. And so um, most specifically and directly uh, the plan that I've outlined through the West Oakland Cultural Action Network, which is my nonprofit that hosts, that houses the Black Liberation Walking Tour, um, is to acquire a a block, a commercial building block, um, with the idea that we would have, be able to, you know, have some retail and food uh, space, whether that's a restaurant or food manufacturing place at below market rate rents for um, community entrepreneurs. Um, to have some space to house nonprofits headquarters and then some space for you know, some meeting room or I'll call it utility space to use event space. And then to have um, kind of the Wokan headquarters, to have a community room, to have a community hangout place, right? Some place where, you know, when and if I'm able to retire, I can go over there and hang out and play dominoes all day with my fellow old retired Black retirees, right? Kind of the places that existed, you know, in this neighborhood when there were more kind of old school black businesses, right? Um, so that that's that desire. If I think about that more, I think about that uh, more broadly, your question, I'm going to come at it from something that we don't, that's not raised up as much, but that is part of the conversation here. And so one of the things that the residents, the longtime residents in this neighborhood want to have, and I think this is might be primarily multi-generational folks like me um, that are homeowners or property owners, we're cons- we want to have a community that um, has the services and products that we need to get that are in our neighborhood. And so what that doesn't look like is to make a ghetto of affordable housing towers. So if we only have, or if we decide, you know, as a city that we're going to put an overwhelming amount of uh, senior affordable housing all along the San Pablo corridor, which is needed, which we got to have. But I think then we won't have things like uh, hardware stores and grocery stores and, you know, other barbershops and other things that need kind of disposable income um, to be supported that may not be consistent with um, senior affordable housing. So I want to be careful how to serve this up because this is critical. You know, the most, the largest portion of the increase in our homeless folks are seniors. And we have to figure out how to house folks. But we know when we house poor people in large concentrations that, that we don't end up with the kind of outcomes that we think we want. We're ghettoizing people. We're warehousing people. And so one of the things we want to make sure, and so another thing that we want to have is, is a supermarket. So, you know, Safeway left 27th and West sometime in the 70s when Safeway was doing his strategy of suburbanization and big old stores. And so they opened uh, 51st and uh, Broadway over there at that shopping center. 
enclosed like Market and West Grand and the one on San, further up San Pablo and the one in San Pablo and West. So we went out with a, we went without a full service grocery store for about 40 years. Community Foods Market, which unfortunately recently closed, had a run of about two and a half years. Um, but sadly, you know, COVID hit, um, you know, less than a year after they opened. So, you know, a supermarket is something that's something that's essential. Um, there's not the, the um, Leilani open, Leilani Bar open, Magnolia Street, uh, wine uh, lounge and kitchen in the California Hotel. Um, you know, reopening space in the California Hotel in the old Zanzibar room area that had been closed for decades. This is a huge uh, move forward around reactivating the San Pablo Corridor and wanting to see some of those things um, that would service that people live in the neighborhood and some of the things that we would want to see. So there's there's some food. Um, you know, I think the other thing, so there's uh, Walgreens is not far away. Um, so there's a pharmacy, but, you know, Walgreens is threatened, has been threatened to close up, you know, all over Oakland. You know, other things, there's a Home Depot over in Emeryville, but there's a lot of closed small retail slash commercial spaces along the corridor. And so while this neighborhood is really convenient to a lot of things, you know, Pill Hill and you know, a lot of shopping in Emeryville, we're close to downtown. Uh, we don't have kind of the employment op- that we had, you know, maybe 50, geez, 50 years ago, 40 years, 40, 50 years ago uh, when I was a kid along here so that people had, at jobs in the neighborhood. So we'd like to see more um, business, office, commercial stuff, um, light industrial. Um, and then we'll see, you know, it would be, you know, Home Depot is great, but a little, you know, kind of hardware drugstore or something, you know, along the corridor would be great. Um, I don't know that there's barbershop, you know, here along the corridor. Uh, people's car washes moving, you know, car washes would be nice to have. And so just kind of these daily things that, you um, Neighborhoods and people who live in neighborhoods and communities want, I still think, first amongst those, not only for practical reasons, but for a lot of psychological um, reasons, a lot of reasons around pride, uh, community, um, grocery store would be uh, kind of not top, near the top of the list. So it's interesting because uh, I think grocery store is, is probably the first thing that needs to be over there because it's that's a that's a huge community that does not have one big big box grocery store at all. I think that's that's challenging. But I, I, one thing that I didn't hear you say that you were looking for was like market rate apartments and and other things like that that developers are trying to put over in that area. Um, do you feel that that those types of developments could hurt uh, West Oakland or could help West Oakland? Uh, that has the potential to do both. And so I want to be clear about, I'm, I'm focusing on my particular, thinking about my particular area of West Oakland, you know, over here between West Grand and 580 along San Pablo. And so, you know, mm-hmm. West Oakland needs, you know, we had, when Safeways were here, there was one at 27th in San Pablo and another at Marketing Grant. Um, and we've got the small Mandela Foods um, down on 7th Street near the BART station, and they've been there for a while. I mean, that co-op, yep. um, Black Lead, uh, is, is been in business for a long time. You know, Adriana is doing great work, um, and they're doing a lot of stuff over there. If we think about, so there is, I want to say there's 3,000 units of market rate um, development slated for 7th Street. 
that's a massive amount of, of development. The uh, amounts of affordable housing, I think, range from anywhere from 35% with Alan Dones' project at the, at the BART station, uh, because BART has required higher affordable housing percentages. Um, if you go right across the street, uh, I believe it's Signature doing another development that only require only has it's either eight percent or twelve percent because that's the affordable housing because that's the state requirement. Um, that development, I think, it's a thousand units, um, is going to significantly change the character of Seventh Street. And so, because it is right there in the neighborhood, we're going to see you know more newer people come come in that area. Uh, I'm so rents are rents have already do. I don't believe I'm not a person that believes that new development pushes up rents. I think it's the high rents that create the investment opportunity that attracts the new developments, the new market rate developments. What we don't see being developed at all is workforce housing. So we've got a requirement for some minuscule amount of affordable housing. Uh, The market rate housing is going to be developed under market rate forces but the, you know, kind of the 80 percent, uh, I don't know, 120 is kind of the HUD standards around medium income, affordable housing, which gets kind of capped at 120. But then that 120, and I think I read something that you need 180 percent of median income to afford the medium home um, or the median uh, apartment. I think it's because the medium doesn't get built. Most importantly, we got to figure out how to get black folks to own real estate. Um, the biggest devastation I think that occurred in all over Oakland was these predatory loans snatching people's houses from them. And we saw oh, yeah. massive displacement. We saw massive declines in black wealth relative to other other white wealth. Um, we and we, no matter how cheap your rent is, it's fundamentally extract and it's fundamentally extractive. You're not building any equity. You're helping somebody else pay off that property. And so I'm really focused on, uh, you know, talking about and doing what little I can to advocate uh, for opportunities and strategies that are create of, of ownership opportunities for Black folks in, in Oakland. Because you know, part of the reason that we got here, an overwhelming reason how we got here was the operation of systemic and institutional racism. The Oakland Redevelopment Agency tore down 50 square blocks down in the Acorns. They smashed the Black Commercial District along 7th Street, you know, post office, the BART tracks, you know, that that uh, 50 square blocks that they tore down for the you know, Acorn Redevelopment and, and just devastated, you know, the commercial center of Black Oakland. And so somebody asked me the other day, hmm, why is it that Chinatown has still has Chinatown and it's still Chinatown, but there's no black town? Like, yeah, that's an excellent question. And it probably has, it goes to culture. It goes to, somebody told me that the Chinese had buying associations from way long time ago where they families pooled their money and they bought the commercial buildings. But we, we can't forget is the action of Oakland's redevelopment agency in, in killing uh, the Black Commercial District in Southern Street, our, our so-called you know, equivalent, Black equivalent to Chinatown. Um, and so I, I think that was a pretty long-winded answer to your question. Um, but the market rate development as we do it, as I've seen, 
is harmful, you know, for our communities. I think there is an opportunity um, with the Howard Terminal Project that the A's are talking about to mitigate um, some of the, to mitigate the, the development on some street that we've talked about. I mean, I think this is, it is a model program that I, that has you know, applicability nationwide. I mean, the fundamental, fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental deals is that new, and it's presumed that these will be condos, is that new condo buyers would pay an additional 0.25% transfer fee. And that would go into a community controlled fund that members of the community would be able to decide how to allocate um, out in the community. And that is projected to be $400 million over 45 years. And so I go, okay, just $400 million. And I think the largest other CBF heard of was $1 million to some defined community groups. So I think there's a massive opportunity to use that um, to mitigate some of the effects of the development that's slated along 7th Street, along with the affordable housing off-site affordable housing, 450, you know, 600 units um, that would be funded by the tax increment district. Dave, we could have a whole show on Howard Terminal alone. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm kind of way deep in it. Sorry, I know you are. But but I do. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the about the tour and the elders in the neighborhood and storytelling. Yeah. Do you get the elders to come out and tell stories on the tour? So, no, what we what we did is we recorded um, the audio segments, mm-hmm. and so uh, me and my Donahue, who has the East Bay yesterday podcast, which is if you're into history, Bay history, phenomenal. Um, he conducted these interviews. And so what he did is he recorded stuff from, uh, you know, we've got Elaine Brown. Is that one of the stops? Ms. Cook is at two of the stops. One called Surrounded by Freeways, where we talk about the impact that freeways had at one particular um, intersection, one particular corner. And then, you know, and by extension, Oakland and and you know, black communities, minority communities everywhere in the nation. Um, we had Dorothy Lazar, recently retired head of the Open History Center, record a bit about um, Delilah Beasley, who was a writer in the early part of the century. And then we've got somebody like Annette Miller, who currently is telling the story how she beat back and fought off Deutsche Bank, who was trying to repossess her grandma's home, um, and how she organized community to, to do that. So, um, while we, we don't have elders come out on the tour, we've got to got record it. Got it. So yeah. I've been on tours of Harlem and I've been on tours in D.C. that focus on black neighborhoods. Mm. I, I'm curious, mm. have you ever or, or did you use a model from other cities in organizing your own tour? I didn't use it. So I've been on a couple of black tours, you know, Boston and um, I can't remember where else. I've done other walking tours. I mainly modeled it after other walking tours in Oakland because that was the most recent experience I had about walking towards. And then just imagining um, what it could be because the tours I've done in open didn't have, um, weren't self-guided. Actually I had have been on self-guided tour and I had been on another tour that had um, audio content. And so how did I think about it? There was actually a black Panther self-guided audio tour that I had went on. Um, that this conceptually is similar to this. Sadly, the company that was hosting that tour 
I think they were they were bought by Bose, and that tour is no longer available. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you've been on the tour in Harlem, New York. That's a that's a great tour. No, I haven't. You have to uh, come and take the tour and give me some more tips, right? Tell me. Oh, absolutely. I plan. I plan on taking it. Absolutely, but I want to do when when you're leaving. Absolutely. Well, tell me about on the tour. Like, is there is there any stop in particular that would be of interest to us? Yeah, so there's there's you know we stop at the Black Panthers first breakfast program site that was set up um, to serve basically me. I was at Durant School at that time. Um, you know we've got uh, Annette Miller who saved her house, but the story I think uh, Delilah Beasley lived in this neighborhood who was the first black columnist for a major. Uh, a newspaper in the U.S. It's really amazing the density of Black heritage sites within just a few blocks. But the story I like to lift up the most is that of C.O. Dellums. You know, C.O. Dellums is vastly underknown, in my opinion. Most, many, many folks know his uncle, Ron Dellums. Oh, and there's a, there's a kind of a funny story about that. C.O. Dellums once asked if he was related to Ron Dellums. He said, no, Ron Dellums is related to me. <laughs> He's the uncle. Um, you know, many, some people know, and I'm always surprised by how few people know that C.O. Dellums was the vice president of the Brotherhood of Sleepy Car Porters um, and fought with A. Philip Randolph to get that first black union in the United States established. He then moved on to uh, fight to break um, hiring uh, segregation in retail stores in both San Francisco and Oakland fought with a bunch of other folks to get folks hired to be able to work where you shop. And then after, you know, kind of integrating retail workplaces, pivoted to working on housing justice at the state level in the state of California. So I would say to you that C.O. Dellums, who lived down the block from my family for about 50 years or so, uh, was the central and foundational figure in the West Coast civil rights movement. Um, And when he got off the train in Oakland in 1921, he was bound for law school at Cal because he figured, you know, this is the only law school that I even think that I might have a chance of allowing a black man to enter. And when he went up there and found out it was the unimaginable sum of $30 a semester, he knew he'd never be able to afford it. So unfortunately for that dream, but fortunately for the rest of us, you know, he then went on to do what he did. And um, I'd like to lift him up because I think he's, underappreciated. There are some other well or better known figures uh, on the tour, but I think that's one that I really like to emphasize. That's a great story. So question for you. Um, I, I feel like uh, before we jump in, into this session, uh, you talked about how you had started this whole effort during the pandemic. How did that, how was, how did that work out for you? I mean, did, was it challenging to get this started during that time or what happened? Well, and so it was oh good grief. Um, no, not not particularly because we were you know we were doing every, we were doing everything by Zoom, and so I think we're, we're we're you know people were comfortable enough with using the um, Zoom or other you know virtual meeting technology that didn't impact us too too badly. Uh, um, I was going to say react to something you said. Oh, the, the tours by me. So um, we do public guided tours once a month. You can find it on Eventbrite. 
Uh, so if you want to kind of figure out when the next tours are going on Eventbrite, search for Black Liberation Walking Tour. You'll see the, the upcoming dates. Um, we have, uh, it's free for West Oakland residents and Black folks everywhere. There's a small fee for, for adults and kids otherwise. Um, so the challenges around the pandemic, it, uh, I'm trying to just remember the exact, how this felt. Because I was going to, I met like a key technology person at the debut of the Women of the Black Panther Party mural house in West Oakland. Many of the other people that were the initial volunteers, I'd already, I already knew. And then we just started, we just set up Zoom meetings and started going. Um, the interviews were conducted you know, by Zoom. Um, so that did not affect the production of the tour. And then when we uh, launched it Juneteenth of last year, it was in, um, we were in a pause. We all thought COVID was, gonna, was over and we were coming out. You know, we had a Juneteenth celebration. There were, there were things happening all over town uh, because it was like, oh, you know, we're, we're done. Uh, uh, so that didn't impact that. And then, you know, later on that summer, I think we had uh, the variants, you know, started really hitting hard. But I, I we didn't get in. The only thing, the thing that would have changed, we would have done these interviews in person. Um, and so that, I think that was the difference. But as a matter of impact, I don't, it didn't impact the tour because we're serving up a retorted, recorded content anyway. Hey, Dave, this has been fantastic. Hey, if somebody wants to find out about the uh, Black Liberation Walking Tour, where do they go? Uh, please go to blwt.org. That's Black Liberation Walking Tours initials, blwt.org. You can find us on Insta at OakBOWT, on Twitter at OakBOWT, and we're on Facebook at the Black Liberation Walking Tour. We have, um, we do the tour and then we've got an event series that WOCAN, West Oakland Cultural Action Network uh, hosts called Brown Liquor Fridays. And if you go on Eventbrite, uh, you will be able to find that there. Uh, we're doing content series on that. Um, now we're going to have uh, presentations from California College of the Arts who's done a lot of work with at least four different neighborhood organizations around future ideas for development around the San Pablo corridor. And then we're inviting our um, political candidates to come and, you know, talk to the folks who, who show up. Oh, that's great, man. So we'll be sure to put links to all that stuff in the show notes of the episode. Thank, thank, thank you for listening to the town roots podcast. For more information about the show to leave comments and connect with the hosts, head over to www.townroots.com. 